0: Lord, we are so grateful for the freedom that we have as a gift from you, but paid for by the blood of young men and women who are willing to lay their lives on the line. For this Memorial Day, God, I can't help but think of some of the people for whom the memories are very recent, because those who they love have been taken away and the cause of freedom. So Lord, provide special strength and comfort for them. Lord, for all the family members whose loved ones are even now in harm's way or who will be heading over that direction. God, please, for your protection and your strength and your encouragement and comfort, we, we ask you today to be with these who are willing to give up some of their own security so that we can continue to enjoy the freedoms that we now possess. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's turn in our Bibles now to the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, and we're moving our way through it towards the end. We're now at chapter 14 of the book of Revelation The the theme of this chapter is, in a lot of ways, the theme of life. And that is, well, as Jesus expressed it, what you sow, you're going to reap. Revelation 14 is reminding us that in those last days, it comes down so often to the fact that the choices that we make have results in where we end up. And that's something that's hard to learn in life, but it's something that's definitely the truth, that what we do today affects where we are tomorrow. And here in Revelation 14, we see that in an ultimate sense. But a reminder also that actions have consequences. Choices have ensuing destinations, and we see it in a global scale here in Revelation 14, but the truth is we live with this every day. We're on Memorial Day, and we think about courage in the past that gives us freedom in the present. Now, be not deceived. God is not mocked. When we refuse to follow God in his teachings, we refuse to honor him, there's a price that's going to be paid later. There always is. Now we've been going through most of the book of Revelation is about this period of time called the tribulation period, a time of pressure, a time of trouble. A time when God brings everything to its culmination and ultimately Jesus comes back and reigns on the earth. The tribulation is something that happens prior to that. Now going through this, as we've seen, it involves a series of judgments for the choices that people have made. And so in a consecutive sort of way, we've worked our way through the seven seal judgments. Each one, a seal is open and something else happened. And then the seventh seal judgment resulted in seven trumpet judgments, where a trumpet is sounded and a judgment comes forth. Now, John kind of interrupted the flow of the sequence because in another next week and the following week, we see the seventh trumpet judgment sound and then these seven bowl judgments are quickly and consecutively poured out, resulting in at the end, Jesus Christ returning to earth and setting up his kingdom. But over the last few weeks, we've been looking at in this parenthesis, chapters 12, 13, 14, some of the details of what happens during the tribulation period. And so it talked about Satan, it talked about the Antichrist, the beast, the false prophet. And now here um, in chapter 14, he talks about some groups of people, and he's looking forward to the culmination. The culmination's about to happen, but now he looks again at these 144,000 Jews who were sealed, 12,000 from each tribe, he looks a little bit more at them, and then he also looks at some three different angels who are declaring certain things, and then the final battle that we will see more about in a few chapters where finally God wraps it all up, but his emphasis in chapter 14 is choices— have destinations that are associated with them. What you do now determines where you are going to be. And this is indeed the most important lesson that we can ever learn. And we see it illustrated graphically here in the fate of various people who make various choices. And so first we'll look at, beginning with verse 1, these 144,000 that we saw earlier were Jews who... 12,000 from each tribe of the 12 tribes of Israel, and they were supernaturally protected by God. They accepted Jesus Christ as their Messiah at the beginning of the tribulation period, and he protects them so that they can't be killed. They go out and share the good news. They're, They're preachers who distribute the gospel, and they live through this whole seven years. Now it's looking at them at the end of... The seven year time period. Then I looked and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion. So here we're looking just ahead a little bit from where we are in the story to see Jesus there standing there at Jerusalem upon his return when his feet come down on the Mount of Olives there across from the old city of Jerusalem. But with him there were 144,000 people. Having his father's head written on his name, written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. So you have heavens opened up. You're hearing this heavenly music coming down. The 144,000 people are now gathered to Jerusalem where Jesus has just returned. And it says they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, the representatives of the church who are already in heaven. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. So there's this worship service at the end of the tribulation period, at the beginning of eternity for these 144,000, and they are accompanied by music from heaven. They're singing a new song. And it says nobody can really sing this song. It's not appropriate for anyone except the 144,000. Now, I don't know why this song could only be sang by them. The elders, the angels, they're all there worshiping God, but this particular song is something only appropriate for the 144,000. What I do know is these people had a unique experience. These are the people who got to watch the tribulation period unfold right before their very eyes, and they had a story of miracle after miracle of how God had protected them during this time. As they shared the gospel, as people became saved, as people were willing to be martyred for the sake of the gospel, and these people saw it all. And so their story is unique in a whole lot of different ways. These are the first Jews who accepted Jesus Christ after the tribulation period started. Puts them in a unique spot too, but their song is therefore a unique song. And you can use your imagination to think of all the ways in which what they experienced was unique and different. But here's the thing. You have a unique song as well, and so do I. Because every one of us has lived a little different life. We've had different experiences. And if we were to write a very personal chronology, our own personal story of what we have to praise God about, each one of us could come up with a song that only we could sing. Because we've all had a different path, we've all had a different storyline that led us to the point where ultimately we are going to stand before God and and live forever in heaven. And so we have our unique song and and they had theirs. But he says in verse 4, "...these are the ones who were not defiled with women..." For they are virgins, these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb, the first converts in the tribulation. and in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Now these people are set apart. I mean, first of all, it mentions that they are sexually pure. And this is something that's really important. Often we think, why does God care so much about us remaining uh, respectful of what he commands us in terms of our physical expressions of affection? Well, it was through um, fornication, it was through sexual corruption that the pagans would always choose to worship. It was a big thing. It's one of the areas where people are just tempted to compromise. So for these people, and, and experts, scholars differ as to whether they were strictly celibate or whether it just means that, that they only maintained physical intimacy within the permissible bounds of what God has laid out for them. Um, either one fits the language. So whether it was that, hey, guys, there's seven years, it's going to be really tough, you're probably best to remain single. Um, that's one possibility. Paul talks about that in times of in times of persecution, that if you can stay single, be a good, good thing to do. Or whether it was just that they were pure in terms of not compromising, as the whole rest of the world was. As soon as people go crazy, they tend to go crazy sexually. We don't know, but that was them. And not only that, it says that in their commitment to God, uh, they follow the lamb wherever he goes. Hey, whatever the Lord wanted them to do, that's what they did. They were redeemed. They were the firstfruits of God. And in their mouth was found no deceit. They weren't phony. They weren't politicians. There were people who didn't play games with the truth. Ultimately, they're without fault before the throne of God. Now, that doesn't mean that they were sinless. They were humans and they sinned. But what it means to be without fault before the throne of God is that as far as God's concerned, they were pure because their sin had been dealt with. Now we have an opportunity by confessing our sins, repenting, choosing to follow God, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you are walking in fellowship with God, you too are without fault before the throne of God. So basically, here's the life of these 144,000. They lived a pure lifestyle. They were honest. They followed God. They were worshipers of God. They gave their attention and their focus to him. And as a result, they are in a very special position. Now he has gathered them together, and ultimately he is going to take them to heaven forever along with everyone else who has ever trusted in God. Now, there would have been people during this time who would say, wow, these people are really making sacrifices. But not at this point because after the pressure is off and the time is over, you see that making a choice to follow the lamb is to make a choice to spend an eternity in heaven with God. And so they made some great lifestyle choices that result in some really great results. But then in verse 6, he said, I saw another angel. Now, another as opposed to what? Well, it's hard to say what the antecedent of another angel is, but there have been a whole bunch of angels, and this is just the next angel that we see introduced. And he was flying in the midst of heaven. That word means that he was up in the middle of the sky. He was like at, at noon, he was zipping through the sky. Having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. So this is the next character that we see, and this is happening sometime during the tribulation period, perhaps just towards the end, but perhaps this was happening routinely throughout the tribulation period. An angel and no, this is not the TV satellite of TBN. Uh, this is an angel. And that's just what they think it is, but um, respectfully, they're wrong. Um, but, but it's the everlasting gospel that's being preached. The same good news, gospel just means good news, good message, It's it's called the everlasting gospel because from the beginning, the only good news that this world has is that Jesus Christ died for our sins, was buried, and rose again. If we put our faith in him, we can live eternally. That was the ultimate message of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. And that's been the good news that's been declared ever since. Now, this is interesting because... Remember, the tribulation period, people are rejecting God like crazy. They're rebelling against him in an unprecedented way. Yes, some people are accepting him. But as the tribulation goes on, most of the people who are going to accept him have already done so. And he's squeezing the last few converts out of the earth. And here you have this angel that's declaring the gospel. And not just to the Jews as the 144,000 who were saved, But to everybody from every country, every tribe, every nation is hearing this message that you don't have to live in rebellion against God. You can be saved and live forever. And so this amazing declaration of the gospel is going on in the middle of the darkness of the tribulation period. And so the gospel is still being preached. Now another angel in verse 8 comes along, following, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Babylon, as we will see in a couple weeks, is a symbol of the head of government during this tribulation period. Um, the Antichrist, the beast, Satan himself, are colluding together and collectively the program that they institute, the one world government, the one world economy, is collectively seen as Babylon. Now Babylon was an actual city over in Iraq and everything evil practically in the world seems to come out of that place, it's amazing. Um, from in the beginning, way back in Genesis, you read about the Tower of Babel, where the first attempt for people to organize themselves against God, to become like God. But so many of the false religions trace back to Babylonian mystery cults and things like that. Now, whether the city of Babylon will be rebuilt, as Saddam Hussein was attempting to do, now it's just kind of sitting out there in the desert, not much happening there. Whether it's going to be rebuilt or whether Babylon is being used as just a symbol of this last day's government slash religion slash economic system that goes on, we don't know. But what's happening here is there's an angel who is, after the gospel is preached, now there's an angel who goes, oh, and by the way. For those of you who are trusting in Babylon saving you, this evil world system being your solution, it is history. It's over. Babylon's not going to do it. Now it's declaring it here. In a couple chapters we will see where Babylon is actually completely wiped out and destroyed. So here's the message. There's good news. You can be saved by just worshiping God. And there's bad news for those of you who don't want to worship God. You're, what you've been trusting in, whether you've been trusting in political salvation, whether you have been trusting in a universal religious salvation, whether you've been believing that somehow the economic system will preserve you, the powers of the dollar, that somehow that's going to do it. This angel is saying none of that stuff is going to work. All of that is going to be destroyed. To choose to follow the political, economic, and religious system that the world offers is to choose to lose. There's still a gospel. But then it says a third angel in verse 9 followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on their forehead or on their hand, "...he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength," starting with chapter 15 and 16, "...into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they give no rest day and night, Who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. So, this third angel says, you have the first angel goes, Man, there's good news. You can worship God and be saved. The second angel is going, There's bad news if you're choosing this Babylonian system because it's going to be destroyed. And then the third angel comes along and goes, It's worse than that. You're going to hell. Fire and brimstone forever and ever eternal misery that will never end. The end of those who reject Jesus Christ is a sad and a miserable and a tormenting end. Now, I don't know exactly what hell is like. I don't know if it's literal fire and literal brimstone. It is obviously misery. Um, The stories that we have of hell being like where Satan's in charge That's not going to be the case. You know, there are people who go talking about a particular person, going, boy, they're going to be really important in hell. In hell, nobody's going to be an important person except God. It says that people who go to hell are going to be in the presence of the Lord and his angels. They're still in charge even then. In hell, nobody is going to be saying, you know, I don't believe in God. People in hell know who God is. The Bible says someday every knee is going to bow, but to choose to refuse to bow before you die means that you'll be bowing forever in a place where you have no rest, in a place where you have nothing that's refreshing or calming, nothing that would even approximate fellowship. This third angel is saying there is hell for people who reject this good news. Now, there are people today who just don't want to believe in hell at all. But not believing it is not going to mean you don't go there. There are people today, even good Christian people, who try to take the scriptures and say, well, maybe hell's not forever. I mean, they look at it logically and go, I don't know, if, if somebody like, sins for 70 years, shouldn't they just like be in hell for 70 years or even double or nothing, go 140, and then finally just be burnt up? There's a teaching of annihilationism that says, you go to hell for a while and then you burn up. There are other people who just go, I just can't see God sending people to hell anyway. So maybe what he does is he sends them through, like say, Palm Springs in July for a little bit. And then he goes, any takers now for heaven? And everybody but Hitler is going to go, yeah, I want to go to... You have the second chance and you go to heaven. And it's a cute idea. And, I mean, it sounds good to me. The problem is Jesus declares really clearly in multiple places throughout the Gospels that hell is a place that's real, that's literal, and that is eternal. It lasts forever. Over in Matthew 25, you can look it up later, the last, I think it's like verse 46, the last verse of the chapter, Jesus equates heaven and hell and their duration. And people who accept Jesus Christ go to heaven forever, and people who reject Jesus Christ go to hell forever, so the time in hell is equivalent to the time in heaven, according to Jesus. Now here it says forever and ever... And that means literally forever and ever. I'm, you know, that, that disappoints me, honestly. Because there are people I know have rejected Jesus Christ, and it's hard for me to think of them suffering forever and ever. But if it, if it hurts me, how it must hurt the God who sent his son and gave his life and goes through all this tribulation and everything to try to get people to repent? But ultimately, he will not force heaven on anyone. No one in hell wishes they were in heaven. That's how stubborn they are, that they don't want to worship God. They have rejected him time after time after time. And so they finally, okay, hey, if you just refuse to go to heaven, then hell is waiting for you. And, and that's what it is, and that's what's seen here. And again, the ultimate destination of some really, really bad decisions. On the one hand, there's good news. Follow the Lamb, worship the Lord, submit to Him, receive His forgiveness, and there's heaven. But if you reject Him, that has consequences as well. Now he goes on and says in verse 12, here is the patience of the saints, the people who are willing to wait for him. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So again, the eternal consequences of either trusting in Jesus or turning your back on him. Just on the one hand, glorious, on the other hand, dire. Then in verse 13, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works will follow them. So he says, From here on, yeah, there's going to be a short time before the tribulation's over. But the people who have accepted Jesus Christ, when they die, they're blessed. And this applies to us as well. Somebody who dies knowing Jesus Christ is blessed because you'll get rest, finally. You'll be in a place of comfort, of blessing, of of just a richness of life. But you have to be patient to get there. It doesn't happen here. It happens there. But he goes, that's what it's all about for the people who have responded to the gospel. But to the people who can't wait and they want what they want now, they'll get what they have now, for sure. But the works of those who choose Jesus Christ will follow them, will go with them all the way to heaven. The result of that choice is something that will last forever. And today, for all of us, the choices that we make have consequences. And the choices that we make concerning Jesus Christ have eternal consequences, And that's what he's stressing here, again, right before we come to the end, right before we come to that time when finally evil is going to be destroyed. He is again making it clear, man, you don't have to be a part of that which is going to be shipped off forever. You can be one of those who enters into joy and rest in heaven. Now as he again begins to show that we're coming to the end, we're getting close to what's happening. We see here a harvest that takes place. Actually, kind of two separate harvests, it would seem to me. Um, Beginning with verse 14, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, to Jesus, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God, and the wine press was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs or 184 miles. This referring to the battle of Armageddon as we'll see in a few chapters. So in talking about sowing and reaping, he now says when this is all wrapped up, there is going to be a harvest. Now, In the first, in verses 14 through 16, we see Jesus himself with the sickle conducting a harvest. And scholars differ as to whether this is a harvest of judgment, just like the one at Armageddon from verses 17 through verse 20. Some people would see it as the same. Um, I'm among those who thinks that perhaps these are two different harvests because of the way they're laid out. See, the the world is going to be harvested in two different respects. And you see this throughout the Gospels, especially as Jesus talks about the future. Over in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus refers to the fact that there are tares among the wheat. And he said, you don't go pull the tares out now because you'll pull out wheat. He said, wait until the time of judgment and the angels will go through and cut down the tares when it's obvious that they're tares, and the wheat will be harvested. And he says that's what the kingdom of God is like. Now, in Matthew 25, in talking about the future, Jesus also talks about the fact that when he wraps it all up, that he's going to come and they're going to gather all of his followers from the four corners of the earth together. And, and then this judgment is going to happen. And so it would seem like in the case of verses 14 through 16, it's talking about those who have trusted in Jesus Christ during the tribulation period are now going to be harvested. And um, Jesus is going to return. And as we saw in the beginning of the chapter with the 144,000, so everyone else who's left who has accepted Jesus Christ is gathered before the place is destroyed. Clearly from verse 17 on, it's talking about a, a harvest of destruction, of, of just squeezing and, and destroying everyone who has rejected Jesus Christ who's left on the earth at this, in particular at this battle of Armageddon. Now, it's possible, and there are some commentators who see uh, all these verses as referring to this last harvest. Um, if that's the case, then... You don't really wanna use harvest, like the Harvest Crusades, as an example of saving people, because if if those commentators are right, then all God wants to do in harvesting is to sickle people, and I don't think that's what we have in mind with the Harvest Crusades. Um, But God is gathering those who respond to the gospel, and, and that's what I see is depicted here. But ultimately, he has to destroy that which is evil. It's the only way he's going to save the people who have turned to him is by removing the people who refuse to accept him. Now, in this battle of Armageddon, and we read about it a lot in the Old Testament, and it's going to come up again later here in the book of Revelation, but here he's just referring to it. By the way, when it refers to up to the horse's bridle, four feet deep in blood for 184 miles, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's that much blood Yet. I mean, that's pretty hard to imagine. The idea is perhaps—I don't know—it could be literal, but but perhaps it's the idea that this long battlefield there in the Valley of Megiddo or the Valley, Valley of Jehoshaphat—that it's that everyone gathers to to try to fight against Jesus as he returns, and they're wiped out, and death and destruction is spread throughout the land of Israel right up near Jerusalem, all the way down through that valley, if there are weapons, if there are people, if there are horses, who knows? But, but it's like you see 184 miles of death and destruction happening. That's what's being depicted. Because this has to end. This has to come to an end. And the death that is seen there is the death that ultimately results in people who refuse to worship and follow the Lamb of God. Before that, everyone who has better late than never turned to Jesus Christ are gathered together with Him to be with Him forever. And so we see throughout this chapter, there are choices, and there will be some, who, although had they accepted Jesus Christ before the tribulation started, it would have been great, but hey, when the tribulation started, they realized Scripture's being fulfilled and here's my opportunity to accept Jesus as my Messiah. And these guys get saved and they are supernaturally protected and they spread the gospel. There are others who get saved and get martyred and they get to go to heaven. The choices pay off for either category, either group. As do our choices, if we accept Jesus Christ today, we'll spend an eternity with him. But as now, so then, there are always going to be people who choose to reject him. And the cost of that decision, the cost of that foolishness, is dire and horrible, and according to Jesus, it lasts forever. It's a permanent damaging decision that will result ultimately in the destruction of this world and the way it does things. And those choices are out there and they are clear. In closing, let's turn over to the book of Joel in the Old Testament. It's towards the end. It's one of the minor prophets toward the end of the Old Testament. Joel is a book that prophesies forward concerning this same era of time, as well as the the age, the Pentecost, where God's Spirit is poured out in Joel chapter 2. But here I'm looking at Joel chapter 3, and beginning with verse 1, he says, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land. They cast lots for my people and so on. And then in verse 7, he says, Behold, I'll raise them out of the place to which you have sold them and will return your retaliation upon your own head. In verse 9, Proclaim this among the nations, Get ready for war wake up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. This is the time for you guys to fight. If you think you're so bad, let's see it. Let the weak say, I'm strong. Assemble and come, all you nations, and gather together all around, because you're mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. Verse 12, Let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision." Same period of time that John is writing of here in Revelation chapter 14. And the message is really clear. If you reject Jesus Christ, if you refuse to receive him, then you better get your weapons ready and you better hope somehow that you are able to beat him. Because by rejecting him, you make yourself an enemy of him. And the day is going to come when it all comes to a head in this place, in the field of Megiddo, in the Valley of Jehoshaphat, where now the final war, the final battle happens. And notice, multitudes, multitudes in the Valley of Decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the Valley of Decision. That's where we are, frankly, There are some of you that today are in the valley of decision. You haven't decided your eternal destination. Now, you might go, oh no, no, believe me, I don't want to go to hell. So yeah, I want to go to heaven. But to choose to go to heaven is to choose to worship the Lamb of God. To choose to go to heaven is to choose to follow Him. It's to, it's to worship and, and, and honor him, to give him the position that he deserves. And so to think that, well, I'm just not ready to make that decision. Guess what? You're making that decision. You are choosing to lay your bet with Babylon. You're choosing to think that somehow it'll all work out okay for you. Now, you may not, and I may not, live to see this particular valley of decision, but every one of us in our lifetime are in the valley of decision even now. And it all comes down, the decision is this, what will you do with Jesus Christ? What do you do with who he says he is, with what he says he had done? What will you decide with your life, and therefore what results can you expect in the future? To reject him, to ignore him, to not worship him is to choose a horrible destination for yourself. And it's very real, and I believe it's very literal, and I believe that plenty of people who have heard the story many times are going to find that out personally, and by then it will be too late. But for all of us, here, now, the valley of decision What are you going to do? What decision are you going to make? What are you going to do today that has eternal consequences? How are you going to live your life today that is going to have an effect on where you live your life in the future? That's the ultimate question that we all have to ask. Oh, this is happening in small ways all the time. To do stupid things today means your life in the future is going to be messed up. We've seen that. We see that in in all kinds of simple ways. To choose to eat too much is to choose to be unhealthy. To choose to not work is to choose to be broke. To choose to not prepare for the future is to be a victim of the future. It's the way life works. It's sowing and reaping. But in this huge decision, what you do with Jesus Christ is everything for eternity. And I pray that if you've been sitting on that decision, if you've just been like, well, I mean, I think Jesus is a good guy, and give me a break, I come to church. You know, where else can I get free donuts and coffee? And you're going, yeah, this is awesome. But you haven't decided to really follow Jesus, to really worship him, to make him your Lord. Please do that. Please take care of that. It will It just... The fact that I know that there are people who I share the good news with, who I know are going to refuse it, just breaks my heart. That someday at judgment day, for some people, God may play back my annoying voice to go, you heard it, man, it was so clear. And look what you chose. That's so sad. It really is. It really breaks my heart and breaks God's heart. It doesn't have to be that way, because anyone who is hearing me right now, anyone who is, who is understanding this, it's such a simple choice, what do you do with Jesus Christ? And I pray that if you, if you haven't made an absolute decision to follow him, I pray that you'll do that today, right now, that you will, in the quietness of your own heart, just say, Okay. I get it i want to make an eternal decision to follow jesus christ and to worship him i've been holding off i've been kind of sitting in the middle but today i in the valley of decision today i make my decision if you haven't done that please do it today After the service, there'll be people up here in front who just love to pray with you. If you want to pray that prayer, if you want to make that choice, you can do it today. If today you decide to just let it slide, I don't know how much more time you have. I'm not sure how many more opportunities you're going to have. Because when you look at a passage like this and it communicates so clearly, if this doesn't do it for you, I'm not sure anything ever will. But right now, if there's something inside of you that says, I need to resolve this, just come down to the front after the service and make things right with God and begin to follow Him. Make sure that you know that you are following the Lamb wherever He goes, and then He'll take you with Him, and He'll be with all of us in heaven for eternity. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the offer that, man, after everything you've done Even in that last day, you're screaming, come on, turn around, listen to the gospel, take the good news. You don't have to do this. You don't have to go there. Oh, you're so patient. And we, as your followers, are patiently waiting for you to bring all of this to a close. We look forward to being with you forever. But God, like you, we want everyone who possibly can to join us there. So Lord, if there are people here today and this is their day, this is their time to respond to your everlasting gospel, draw them to yourself by your Spirit now. We thank you for what you'll do. Lord, help us to be more aware in our lives of the consequences of the choices that we make, and especially as we make ultimate choices. May we realize that they involve ultimate resolution and destination. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.